Welcome to another episode of The Caption Life, a podcast about how comics and pop culture impact life and society and vice versa. Coming to you from deep in the heart of Texas, I'm Kevin. And from Indiana, I am Sean. Before we get started with this episode, please hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on. And follow us on social media under the username at Caption Life. You can also find out more information and past episodes at thecaptionlife.com. Hey, we've got a great episode for you today. Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're going back to a familiar well, um, because despite the fact that uh, Sean and I are both professed lovers of Superman, <laughs> we, we seem to talk about his brother from another mother an awful lot on this show. But Batman does make for uh, more interesting conversations a lot of time. And uh, I, I, I think our guest today could be considered an expert on Batman. Uh, and, and we're getting a chance to talk today to Michael Uslan, uh, who is the originator and executive producer of the Batman movie franchise, spanning from 1989's Batman to 2022's The Batman, including the Joker, the Dark Knight trilogy, the Justice League series he's worked on uh, his work has been awarded with Oscars, Emmys, People Choice Awards, Annie Awards. He was the first instructor to teach an accredited course on comic book folklore at any university and continues to teach as a professor of practice at Indiana University Media School. He's also the author of The Boy Who Loved Batman, uh, which will become a Broadway play here in the fall of 2022 with the Nederland organization. For Genius Brands, Michael oversees the Stan Lee universe and a legacy of characters created by Stan Lee post-Marvel. And he was appointed to Joe Biden's task force of entertainment industry executives regarding gun violence and movies and television. He's also served as a judge for the Asian Film Awards or the Asian Oscars. He's also served on the boards of Discovery Channel, Global Education Partnership, the Association of Film Commissioners International, uh, Wild Brain Animation Studios, the Center for Excellence in Education, uh, Youth Grants Panel, National Endowment for the Humanities, the New Jersey Film Commission, the Thomas Edison Black Maria Film Festival and the Asbury Park Music and Film Festival. And he is the author of the new book, Batman's Batman, which was released in March and is now available on audiobook as well. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thanks, Scott. With a resume like that, this guy must be as old as the hills. <laughs> I, I have to tell you, I, we have to start out with this. One of the crowning moments of my Batman career and what I started out with came, it was just pre-COVID, at the unofficial opening of the San Diego Comic-Con Museum, where they began the um, Comic Book Hall of Fame. And the first superhero that was inducted into the Hall of Fame was Batman, awesome Superman. (laughs) And if that isn't like the grand prize for a lifetime devoted to bringing Batman to the world, I don't know what is. Um, That that was a cool moment. And by the way, I'll I'll take you on with some old time Superman trivia as well. Uh, I started I started with Superman, and when I was a much more mature seven or eight, I graduated to Batman. I don't want to like burst your bubble, but I'm fairly certain that uh, Batman was only inducted first because of alphabetical order. (laughs) Yeah, then how do you explain Archie being left out? That's a good point. That's a good point. And Aquaman and the Atom. He just roasted you there, Kevin. <laughs> he had a comeback prepared. You hate when I when I say things and you're not prepared for a comeback. Oh, all the time. Yeah. 
I, I, I don't like to be caught off guard. I, I'm caught off guard a lot. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, Michael, thank you for coming on the show with every guest that we have on. We always ask them the same question to start off with. And that is, what is your comic book origin story? Was there someone or something that introduced you to comics? And what was it that made you a comic book fan? Sure. It was my big brother, Paul, who introduced me to comic books. And when I say that, I owe him a great deal of gratitude for that. However, during my entire childhood, if in my own mind, I was Batman, my brother was my Joker. And (laughs) that's the way it was until he went off to college. And since then, I might add, uh, as we both grew up, he is now a combination of my Superman Robin and Jimmy Olsen all in one. Nice. So he is more than made up for it. But <laughs> my earliest recollection is being maybe, I don't know, four years old uh, when he took me to, I remember the store in Bayonne, New Jersey. My dad gave him um, 50 cents, two quarters. And we went in and the entire wall of this candy store was a rack of comic books from floor to ceiling. Wow. I stood up, I maybe covered the first 10 rows, but then it just kept going up into the sky. <laughs> and my brother told me that he was going to buy three comic books and I could buy two comic books. <laughs> That's, that kind of sums up everything for me growing up with it. <laughs> and then I saw something up top or I wanted to see what was on top and he put me up on his shoulders and I reached up and I can remember to this day, the first two comic books I ever bought. One was DC Comics Sugar and Spike, number two. And the other one was a Detective Comics with the Batmobile that looked like an urban tank on it. Wonder when that would resurface. (laughs) Um, But that's my earliest recollection. My mom told me that I learned to read from comic books, actually, before I was four years old. And whether they, that was Casper and Richie Rich or, or whatever, um, or Donald Duck or Looney Tunes, I, I really don't know. But I, I go back to almost the year zero with comics. That's awesome. Yeah, and I remember reading that story in, in the preface of your book. And so I, it's, I love hearing that story coming from you because it's just so vivid and, and obviously stuck with you, you know, for your entire life and everything like that. But I love hearing those details about that story. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. Um, You know, it's been a, it's been an entire lifetime now, I can say uh, in a, in a world that bridged comic books and reality. And it's always been that way. I was lucky enough to figure out how to take this passion I had in life and make it into my life's work. And that's been a blessing. It's been really great. It's awesome. That's awesome. So, uh, Michael, you're known for having established the first accredited college course on comic books at Indiana University. And and since you still have a, a teaching position there, does that mean that you and Sean are, are co-workers, technically? <laughs> we have a nexus. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we have a nexus. Uh, <laughs> can you can you tell us a little bit why uh, you wanted to, to create that class and how that came about? Sure. Um, let's see if I can come up with a short version. So my dad was always teaching my brother, Paul, and me uh, about the need to explore. And when you're young, explore, try to find the things that you're passionate about, the things you love. And that always stuck with us because he had that. He was, my dad was a stonemason 
and loved what he did and was very proud of the fireplaces and the chimneys and the homes that he built with brick and cement that will last lifetimes. Um, and you could see that he worked six days a week his entire life, got up before dawn every day, didn't matter if it was snowing or, or hot. And he went out there and he enjoyed it. He was an old world artist. Um, we went to work for him when we were in high school and it was horrible. Um, it was tarring foundations in the heat and humidity mm-hmm. and carrying heavy bags of cement and bricks. Um, but we had to go out and figure out what our version of bricks and stones were. And for me, it was clearly comic books and movies, cartoons, things like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm a blue collar kid from New Jersey. I couldn't, I couldn't just buy my way into Hollywood or comic book land. I, I didn't know anybody in those industries. I had no family in those industries. So for me, it was always, how do you, how do you jump the Grand Canyon? How do you get there from here? Mm-hmm. And I was always looking for any opportunity to get my foot in a door somewhere, even if it was only open just to crack. And that opportunity came for me at Indiana University. It was my junior year of college. And... Um, uh, Sean, do you mind if I tell this story again or? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. Um, I read that Indiana university, the college of arts and sciences had started a thing called an experimental curriculum department. And the concept was if you had an idea for a college course that had never been taught before and could get the backing of a department on campus, you then would have the right to appear before a panel of deans and professors and pitch the course If the dean approved it, you could then teach it. Even though I was only an undergrad, I was a junior. Mm -hmm. I could still teach that course on campus for three hours of credit. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, this is a chance. There's never in history in the world been a course on comic books. Mm -hmm. So I sat down and I wrote up a syllabus that comic books were a true American art form as indigenous to this country as jazz. Mm-hmm. And that comic book superheroes were our modern day mythology. And I went to the folklore department and God bless Dr. Henry Glassy, <laughs> uh, my folklore professor at the time, who heard my plea and said, Michael, you're, a- you're absolutely right. It, these are stories about brave heroes who fight the demons and dragons of their day in stories dealing with hope and redemption. So it doesn't matter if we call them Beowulf or Ulysses or Superman. It doesn't matter if we call them all King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table or the Avengers or the Justice League. You're right. This is contemporary folklore. I'll back you. So armed with that, I made my appearance before the Court of Owls. Excuse me. (laughs) Before the professor. I love that. (laughs) And I started my pitch. It was the first pitch of my career. Um, The dean let me speak for, I don't know, maybe two minutes. And then said, Mr. Uslan, stop. He said, come on. He goes, I read comic books when I was a kid. I read every issue of Superman I could ever get my hands on. But all comic books are, are cheap entertainment for little children. Nothing more, nothing less. And I reject your theory. Mm. And this became for me a life changing moment because 
As an intimidated undergrad, I could have bowed my head, picked up my funny books and turned around and walked out of the room. And that would have been that. But instead, figuring I had absolutely nothing to lose and was trying to pursue my passion, I just said, Dean, may I ask you two questions? He said, yeah, go ahead. Ask me anything. I said, are you familiar with the story of Moses? And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, yeah, so. I said, so, Dean, very, very briefly, could you just summarize for me the story of Moses? And the dean sat back, arms crossed, looking at me and going, Mr. Uslan, I don't know what game you're playing here, (laughs) but I'll I'll play this with you. He said uh, the Hebrew people were being persecuted. Their firstborn were being slain. A Hebrew couple placed their infant son in a little wicker basket and sent him (laughs) down the river Nile. There he's discovered by an Egyptian family who raised him as their own son. When he grew up and learned of his true heritage, he became a great hero to the Hebrew people. But I said, stop, Dean, that was great. Thank you. You said before you read Superman comics when you were a kid. By any chance, do you remember the origin of Superman? He said, sure, the planet Krypton was about to blow up. A scientist and his wife placed their infant son in a little rocket ship and sent him to Earth. There he's discovered by the Kents, who raised him as their own son. When he grows up, and then he stopped. <laughs> stared at me for what I swear to you was an eternity and said, your course is accredited. Oh my God. That's awesome. That's a great story. That is a great story. I am now the world's first college professor of comic books. Oh my God. (laughs) That is awesome. I started laughing when you're halfway through the Moses story because I could tell where it was going. Yeah. And only a real Superman fan could do that. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah. I'm I'm well versed in in the Old Testament as well as uh, Superman. So like it it just it was I I was just having a moment with my with my own laughter there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, that was just half the story because what happened next? I'm as excited as could be about what I just pulled off. <laughs> and I talked to my mom who's in New Jersey. I said I told her what just happened. She said, Michael, that's great. She said, but if you don't market yourself, if you don't market your creative wares, no one will ever know about it. And I said, Ma, I'm in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm 20 (laughs) years old. I have no money. How am I supposed to market myself or market this? And she gave me her typical answer. You're a smart boy. You'll figure it out. (laughs) So figuring I had absolutely nothing to lose. I picked up a telephone and I called United Press International. This was at that time as big a new syndicate as the Associated Press is today. And this poor reporter got on the phone and I started to scream at the guy. I said, what is wrong with you? You are not doing your job. He said, excuse me. He goes, "Um, I'm sorry. What is this about? I said, what is this about? Are you kidding me? I just heard there's a course on comic books being taught at Indiana (laughs) University. Are you telling me as a taxpayer in the state of Indiana that they're using my money to teach our children comic books? This is outrageous. This has got to be some sort of communist plot to subvert (laughs) the youth of America. And I slammed down the phone. (laughs) It took this guy three days to find out if IU really had a course like this. And if so, who was the lunatic teaching it? (laughs) He shows up at my doorstep with a photographer. They wind up doing an article with pictures. It's a third of a page long. Uh, 
It gets picked up in syndication by virtually every newspaper in North America, a whole bunch in Europe, and my phone started ringing off the hook. I was invited on radio talk shows, on TV talk shows. I never taught one class at Indiana that the classroom wasn't jammed with television cameras and reporters. NBC Nightly News, CBS Evening News. And um, that's the way it was for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And then one day, my phone rings for the upteenth time. And it's, it's this exuberant male voice. Hi, is this Mike Uslin? Yeah. Hi, I'm Mike. This is Stan Lee from Marvel Comics in New York City. <laughs> I call this my burning bush moment. <laughs> you, you, like, you like the Old Testament? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was talking to my God. <laughs> um, Stan said, Mike, everywhere I look, I'm seeing you on TV. I'm reading about you in newspapers. What you're doing is great for the whole comic book industry. How can I help you? Wow. And at that moment, Stan Lee changed from being my idol to my mentor, ultimately to my friend and creative associate. And we wrapped things up where uh, my son David and I were two of the producers of his memorial at Brownman's Chinese Theater. About two hours later, the phone rings again. It is a very quiet, dour male voice. This time it's Mr. Uslin. My name is Saul Harrison. I'm vice president of DC Comics in New York City. We published Superman, Wonder Woman. I said, yeah, Batman, I know. He said, we've been listening to you on the radio and reading about you in magazines. He said, you're a very innovative young man. We would like to fly you to New York City and discuss ways we might be able to work together. Wow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, comic book geek dream come true. I fly to New York. I meet with them. They offer me a job. I'm to work at DC Comics in my summers. And when I go back to Indiana for school, they're going to put me on retainer and pay me every week. Wow. I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> So should I stop it there and let you ask some more questions? Because if you don't stop me, <laughs> it'll be like a never ending story. Um, honestly, I could listen to you, like just keep talking, I think for the rest of the night, this is, this is just fantastic. And, and I'll say this is that your story of, you know, your perseverance with trying to make this comic book course become a reality was very um, similar to the story of you trying to get, the Batman film produced because I remember oh, yeah. and again, in the preface of your book, you had to share that experience about how you were, went to all those, um, you know, film uh, studios and everything and trying to get that in. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to say too much. So that way people can read the book and everything, but it seemed really reminiscent of that. So it sounds you know, that moment also helped you with making the Batman film a reality as well too. And it's obviously, you know, impacted all of us growing up and everything. So it's, so, yeah, so no, that was fantastic. So thank you. I, and if you like to hear me tell stories, why don't you get the audio? Yeah. <laughs> hey, Stan, I got the plug in just like you taught me. <laughs> I think it's I think it's interesting that uh, you said that your mother, your mother gave you the uh, the 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 advice like oh, you're a you're a big boy you'll figure it out and i feel like moms do that kind of thing all the time so that they have they can be proud of you when you do something amazing like you did mm -hmm. 
Um, but also so they have plausible deniability for when you do something, they're like, I said, figure it out. I didn't say do that. You got to remember, you know, even at that point in this, in the early seventies, comic book reading was still quite subversive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It hadn't broken into the mainstream at all. It was super duper subversive in the mid fifties, uh, and sixties when Dr. Frederick Wortham came out with his book, Seduction of the Innocent. Mm-hmm. I mean, comic books were the major cause of the post-World War II rise of delinquency mm-hmm. that any um, boy who read a Batman comic would turn into a homosexual and any woman who read a Wonder Woman comic book would turn into a lesbian and that comic books cause asthma because children were staying indoors to read them instead of playing outside in the front, the fresh air. And, and that's that's the atmosphere that we were living in. Mm-hmm. And, what, you know, once you got past the age of 12 and you went to buy comic books, they looked at you like you were some sort of sociopath. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, I- they're, they're now it's 2022 and they're responsible for the entire downfall of uh, American society. <laughs> if we could only go back in time. Yeah, well, let's thank all the mothers of the world because they're the ones who have made comic books so valuable because they throw throughout all of our collections. Oh, yes, for sure. College. <laughs> but the mothers of the world also encourage us to read, which <laughs> mm-hmm. which like I've, I've told my story before, like my mom like would drag us to the library during the summer. And that's where I picked up like the massive volume of like the Superman dailies from uh, from back in the day. And that's how I learned to love reading comics as well. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's, it's, a, it's all such a delicate, delicate, uh, you know, balance in the universe. The only reason my mom let me read and bring comic books into the house and collect them, which most of my friends were forbidden from doing mm-hmm. that in the 50s, early 60s was um, the deal she made with me was I have to keep them neat in my room and I have to promise to read other things like books, magazines, and newspapers. Mm. And that was the greatest deal I ever made in my life. <laughs> that allowed me to keep my collection. No kidding. No, that, is, <clears throat> that is a great deal. Well, and, and you know, for me, um, personally, my mom never discouraged reading comics or anything like that um, because her oldest brother you know, my uncle obviously uh, was an avid comic book reader and he was the one that got me into comics. And, and I'll, I'll share the story with you, Michael, real quick, because I think you'll appreciate this is that he had a lot of the first prints from a lot of the Marvel and detective comics um, growing up. And then I guess, you know, he was, he was also a prankster and he liked to get in trouble and, and uh, was really good at it too. He'll tell me like how he got around and how his parents like never found out what he did. But every once in a while, they did. And so my grandfather, as punishment, would take all of his comics that he had and actually burn them in the fire as a as a punishment. And so that was something that I think has really stuck with him to this day and that he makes sure that, you know, he has boxes of comics and like made sure that he didn't do anything to give him reason to burn them again after that. <laughs> there is a chapter, a whole chapter in my book, The Boy Who Loved Batman, that deals with my friend Bobby. Mm-hmm. And when his dad shoveled his whole collection into the fireplace and we were there staring. And when I say collection, this would have occurred in 1963 or four mm-hmm. that he did it. So what we watched burn was amazing fantasy 15, oh. six fantastic <laughs> four, one through 20, oh, uh, the first God. five Avengers, the first five X-Men, the uh, tales of suspense, 39 journey into mystery. I've got so, worst case, worst case scenario. <laughs> 
Yeah. 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 Um, Dang it. <laughs> yeah, Bobby, Bobby and I sat down about 10 years ago and we computed at that time, 10 years ago, that that day he burned well over $3 million worth of comic books. Now, probably today it's double. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> just, it, it makes you sad <laughs> just hearing about that. Very painful. Yeah. Well, Michael, switching gears a little bit. So for um, for those of us who don't know, you are the person responsible for getting the Batman films produced, and you're listed as the executive producer for any Batman film that's ever been created um, since the 1989 Tim Burton Batman film. Um, and so we want to ask you, do you have a favorite story from being involved with any of the Batman films that you just love to tell? Yes, but I can't tell it in public. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let me rephrase it. What's the favorite story you have that you can tell in public? <laughs> um, there's, there's two. Okay. Um, one is now specifically from the movies or from anything Batman. Uh, why don't we do both? I either one, whatever your favorite one is. I again, I think Kevin, I could just listen to you, yeah, you know, no, tell yeah. the story. So this, whatever this, you want to tell we're, us, <laughs> we're totally comfortable with this being the longest episode of our podcast. Oh, yeah, ever. yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, first to the movies, and then we're going to go back to the to my greatest Batman experience. Awesome. In my lifetime, um, it was 1988. Uh, we were filming the first Batman movie at Pinewood Studios outside of London. Mm-hmm. And that's where like the James Bond movies, Star Wars, I mean, it, it was historic. Five square city blocks of Gotham City were built on the back lot. My dear friend, Anton First, who was an absolute genius, was the production designer uh, of that movie. Um, we want, Seeing his Gotham City come to life in reality and his design on the Batmobile come to life was absolutely incredible. I remember walking through the Gotham City set one day with my partner, Ben Melnicker. Ben, ben was my dad's age. Mm-hmm. Ben was a legend in the movie business. Um, it, he started at MGM in 1939. Not a bad year to be at MGM. No way. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> and Ben was a legend in the business. He was executive vice president at MGM. All divisions reported to him. He started the animation division there and then helped uh, Hannah and Barbera set up their own company uh, later on down the line. Uh, ben put together the deals for Dr. Zhivago, Ben Hur, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And all their musicals. And as we're walking around, Ben turned to me. He said, you know, Michael, I was on the set of Ben-Hur. And I thought never in my life would I ever see sets that would dwarf what we did for Ben-Hur. He goes, and I'm telling you right now, this just puts it to shame. This is amazing. And that day walking around with Ben was great. We then came back. My son, David, was eight at the time. My daughter, Sarah, was four. And uh, we had them with us. And um, Andy Smith, the stunt driver, uh, offered to give them a ride through Gotham City in the Batmobile. So as you know, it's a two seater. Mm -hmm. So David being the big brother, um, he took the passenger seat and they sort of propped Sarah up on the console. And as they're driving through, like every big brother should, he said to Sarah, you see this button? If I press this button, you're going to go shooting <laughs> through, the, through the roof of the Batmobile and you're going to land on top of that building. <laughs> Absolutely terrorized the sister. To this day, she will not sit in the middle seat in the front of a car. 
Um, so needless to say, she wasn't feeling her happiest that day. In fact, she was awful. Yeah. Um, it came time for lunch and me and my wife and David and Sarah were eating in the executive dining room at the commissary um, at Pinewood. And who walks in but Batman? <laughs> and Michael had his uh, had the, the cowl and the cape off, but it was all the rest of the stuff. As he comes walking by the table, he sees my four-year-old daughter sitting there, you know, like, like a Grinch. <laughs> and he bends down and he goes, Sarah, what's the matter? And she turns her back on Batman and she won't talk to him. <laughs> and Michael wound up sitting in her lap and puts his finger into her plate, which contained, as I recall, meatloaf, green peas, and mashed potatoes and started flicking the green peas up and at her. And all of a sudden she turned around and she started flicking green peas at Batman. <laughs> and she, get, she got into a food fight with Batman. <laughs> and then he went to have lunch um, and she was in the best of spirits for the rest of that day. And in the afternoon we had, we went up and we, we took the kids up to the, Inside the studio was where the rooftop was built, where that iconic first scene happens, mm -hmm. where Batman grabs the guy and says, I'm Batman, and then throws him down, turns around and jumps off the roof. Mm -hmm. So we were all right up there as that was being shot. As, it, as the I'm Batman thing is being shot, Sarah is standing just to the right of Keaton, literally where you see his right elbow. She's right under it. And she had Shirley Temple-like curls all over her head. It was, it was incredible to this very day. Whenever I see the movie on a big screen, I am looking at that bottom right corner. Absolutely sure. At some point I'm going to see just a little bit of Sarah's curl <laughs> in that scene, but that was a magical day for all of us, for me and Nancy and David and Sarah and Ben, it was just a magical day. That's amazing. I love that. Well, that's so cool. You, you've got your new book out now, Batman's Batman, and it's a sequel of sorts to your previous book, The Boy Who Loved Batman. How, how do you how did you get to the point where you realized that you had more stories like that to tell and you were ready to write another book? Oh, that's a breeze. Um, this the first book, The Boy Who Loved Batman, really tells you who I am as the comic book geek growing up and how this passion drove me through my entire life. And then how does a kid in his 20s, buy the rights to Batman from DC Comics. I mean, if you don't set that story in the context of its time and explain how it evolved, it's impossible. Somebody would say, oh, come on, that's inconceivable. How, how could that happen? But it did. So that is the story of how that happened, why that happened, and then the fact that at that magical moment, when I thought everything was going to be a piece of cake, I was turned down by every single studio and mini major in Hollywood. They told me it was the worst idea for a movie they ever heard. A dark comic book movie, dark superheroes, a movie based on an old TV show that's never been done. And I, I kept hearing I was crazy and it was a terrible idea. Um, and then it, ta it talks about the 10 years that it took from the time I bought the rights to Batman Till we got that first movie made in 1989, 10 years of rejection, 10 years of not knowing where my next dollar was going to come from, 
Mm-hmm. 10 years of trying to persevere, trying to combat frustration, trying to hold on by my fingertips and still take care of my family. Um, that's what the boy love Batman is about. And that actually is the reason that it's been uh, it's being adapted into a Broadway play, which right now they're targeting, by the way, for spring of 23. Um, and we'll have more to say about that probably at San Diego Comic-Con. Um, awesome. But they want stories now post-COVID of, that are entertaining and fun, but that talk about people who dream big and what they have to do to persevere to make those dreams come true mm-hmm. and what you go through to do that. And it's all about hope. And, um, and, and they love that idea. They, th- they think the time is right for this sort of story to resonate with people. So I was very, very happy about, about that. With Batman's Batman, my new book, it was inspired by a book I read when I was um, around the end of high school by William Goldman. Bill Goldman was the dean of all screenwriters in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Look up his credits. They're unbelievable. And Bill wrote a book called Adventures in the Screen Trade, all about his adventures and misadventures in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's the book that inspired me to get into the industry. That's the book I want to write now. Talk. I've been in this business 45 years. I have hundreds of anecdotes, stories of successes, and 10 times more stories of failures and how you get through the failures and not just about the successes and the 13 steps that it takes to being a producer in Hollywood and what that involves. So in a sense, it's an anecdotal um, autobiography, memoir. Uh, in another sense, it's a motivational book for anyone who cares to dream big or follow their passions. That's awesome. That's that's actually a, a pretty good segue into our next question that we have for you. So um, in addition to being a writer and producer for Batman, you've also been involved in a lot of other projects outside of that. Um, is there one that stands out for you as one of your favorite or that you're most proud of that's outside of the world of Batman? Oh, sure. I'm a history major. Yeah. And I'm a history buff to the nth degree, especially American history, but, but all history. Mm-hmm. So history is a passion. So I was always on the lookout for a way I could use my history passion in a project. Mm-hmm. And that finally came to pass in the eighties, mid eighties. Um, when we produced three sovereigns for Sarah, a PBS miniseries for American Playhouse with Vanessa Redgrave, Kim Hunter, Phyllis Thaxter, and Patrick McGowan, one of my idols. Um, two of my favorite TV series growing up were The Prisoner. Mm-hmm. That ranks right up with Twilight Zone for me. Mm-hmm. And also uh, Patrick's other series, Secret Agent Man. <laughs> um, which was great. And at that time we were all consumed by James Bond. So anything yeah. secret agent, was really working well. So I got to work with these incredible, seriously, some of the best actors of, uh, of the century. Mm-hmm. And it was a, the story of the Salem witch trials of 1692. And my mandate was it had to be 100% historically accurate. We weren't going to do like what the networks do and twist and turn the stories. We weren't going to be sloppy and let go by like they did in, uh, I think it was the George Washington miniseries they did on CBS where, you know, you could catch a 747 in the background there. And <laughs> how interesting that one of Washington's generals was wearing a Rolex 
and, uh, and a goodly number of his troops were in uh, designer sneakers. So we weren't about to let that happen. And we hired the two great preeminent Salem Witch Trials historians to be not only consultants, but to be on the set every day and gave them power over the director. They could stop a scene from being shot if a location wasn't right, if a costume wasn't right, if hair or makeup wasn't right. Um, everything had to be perfect. And and it worked. I mean, what, what we accomplished here was incredible. My office for six months was the second floor of the House of Seven Gables. Yeah, you know, you want to talk about atmosphere? Yeah. Um, I moved into a house in Salem for those six plus months. And uh, one of my two roommates was Chip Cronkite, who was our assistant editor. And uh, every once in a while, his dad, Walter, would uh, bring the, the the boat over from Martha's Vineyard and take us out on a Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. It was just, it, it was an incredible experience. So um, uh, there is a couple of Three Sovereigns for Sarah stories that I tell in my books. Um, which is the one that won't get us kicked off the air? Uh, <laughs> I, I think it was this one. Um, I'm on the set one day. We're at the Rebecca Nurse House, where uh, an actual prime location for the Salem witch trials, mm-hmm. where they took Re- Rebecca Nurse away, accused as a witch, in the middle of the night. They took her from her bed, and um, we were filming there on location. And uh, the historian came up to me and said, Michael, are you really serious that you want everything to be 100% historically accurate? I said, yeah, what's the problem? (laughs) He said, well, next week we've got a scene coming up where Vanessa is going to be walking with her cow uh, amid some of the cattle. I said, what's wrong with that? He said, well, truth be told, cattle no longer look the same way they did 300 years ago. Wow. So he said, do you want to want me to tell the screenwriter to delete that scene or write something else? Or what do you want to do? I said, is that the only alternative we have? He says, no, there's one other alternative. I said, tell me. He said, down at Cape Cod, there is a place called Plymouth Plantation. And it is a village that is a six in a 17th century village maintained by people down there in costume and they never break character. It's, oh. it's like a historical experience. Yeah. Um, he said they've been crossbreeding the cattle. Their cattle down there look exactly like they did 300 years ago. Awesome. So I get in my car. I drive to Cape Cod. And I meet with them. I said, listen, I'm doing this for PBS. Okay. I'm on a PBS budget. We're doing everything possible to make this 100% historically accurate. And you're the only people who could help me do this. And I made a deal with them. And they agreed to help us out. We wound up having a cattle drive up Route 1 through Saugus, up toward Danvers and Salem, um, Massachusetts. And by God, when you see this miniseries, those cows look exactly like they did 300 years ago. But, but that's the lengths that you go to when you're producing something and you're passionate about it. And you want it to be the best. That's awesome. That's amazing. That- what you were describing reminds me of a, there's a place in Indiana called Connor Prairie. That's like an interactive history museum. And that's kind of what they do. They stay in character and, and have uh, the costumes and everything like that. But that's just amazing. Just that level of detail of being able to keep everything as historically accurate down to the cattle. Like, I don't think I would have ever thought about that <laughs> in a hundred years. So that's, yeah. <laughs> and I think it speaks volumes to your commitment to about your commitment to do it the right way. Mm-hmm. I think, 
I think far too many times, even even people who are like in their creative efforts have to settle in things. And and I, I doubt I mean, you could correct me, but I doubt you'd be the person you are today if you'd if you'd have like just settled for that, that dean telling you, no, your your um, your class isn't going to cut it or you know, in these endeavors that you've had, you know, saying, you know, you know what, it's, it's okay if we have, you know, modern cows, like just the, just the fact that you're, you're unrelenting in your, your pursuit to get it right is just, is just amazing. Well, the ultimate story involving that is the one I opened my book, Batman's Batman with that tells the story of where the title of the book comes from. Mm -hmm. And um, do you want me to go into that or shall we? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Ben and I were, had been rejected by every studio. We had only one more studio we could go to. And we went there. And this was it for us, we mm-hmm. thought. And I pitched my heart out for a dark and serious Batman movie. And the exec there, who was a very dapper, silver-haired guy, had been running things there for decades, an old pal of Ben's from the old days. And I pitched my heart out. And he said to me at the end, shaking his head, he goes, Michael, you're nuts. He goes, Batman will never be a successful motion picture because our movie, Annie, didn't do well. (laughs) And I said, well, wait a minute. Are you talking about that little redheaded girl from Broadway who sings the song Tomorrow? He goes, yeah. I go, who said that? What does that have to do with Batman? <laughs> he says, oh, come on, Michael. They're both out of the funny pages. And that was my rejection from Columbia. Mm-hmm. And with that, he turns to Ben and he says, listen, Ben, you and I go back a long way. If you boys are really intent on making a Batman movie, I'll consider it. But it's got to be that funny potbelly Batman with all those pows, zaps, and whams. Because that's the only Batman that audiences will remember and love. Mm-hmm. And before Ben could say a word, I said, no. And the executive pulls his chair up in front of me and leans in. And he says to me, son, and I've learned whenever anyone calls me son, I'm in trouble. <laughs> he says, son, better to have a movie made than no movie at all. And I said, no. No. That was it. That was our last studio. Mm -hmm. Ben and I leave the meeting and we wind up sitting down on like a park bench on the studio lot. And I am despondent. And Ben, in his wise and fatherly way, turns to me and goes, you know, Michael, isn't it ironic that the last no we got came from you? He said, you know what that makes you? I said, yeah, Ben, an idiot. (laughs) He says, no, Michael, that makes you Batman's Batman. And I picked my head up. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, Michael, you just gave up an opportunity to make a movie. You just gave up a huge amount of money because this is not about making a movie. This is about making your movie. Mm-hmm. You have this vision of what you completely believe in is right for Batman along the lines of what his creators created in 1939, this creature of the night. And you're willing to sacrifice everything for that. 
He goes, Michael, you're Batman's protector. You're Batman's defender. You're Batman's Batman. That was an epiphany moment. for, And then Ben said, so come on now. There's other places we can go. There are foreign com- companies. There, there's um, financing companies. Let's get going and we will redouble our efforts to make this happen. And up I leaped from the bench and off we went into what turned out to be movie history. <laughs> yeah, like I, I don't want to downplay your your importance to like modern modern cinema because because of the success of Batman at Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers has a a renewal of sense in in the motion picture industry. Batman carried Warner Brothers uh for a long time and mm. and the the now Warner Brothers owns DC Comics and they're and they're inseparable, but the success of Batman allowed them to tell other stories. I mean, there'd be no Harry Potter without, mm-hmm. without Batman. And, and I think that like, I think it's worth noting that your insistence on creating that film and what it be, would become the cultural phenomenon that it would become, because it was the, it was there were in 1989, you, you mentioned 1939, 1939 at MGM was the year for people who don't know. This was the year of um, gone with the wind. Mm hmm. And uh, a little movie called The Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and 1989, oh my goodness, 1989 had had Batman. There were there were others. I remember I wrote I wrote these down, but like it, there were a lot of big time movies that came out that year, and and Batman beat every one of them at the box office. Mm-hmm. It was considered 89 was considered the best year in cinema since 1939. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I'd have to go. I, I, I don't remember exactly the ones. I remember I wrote a question. I think we scratched it from the the board. Um, but but I'll, I'll, I'll add one thing to that. Without the first Batman movie, there I don't believe there would be a Marvel Cinematic Universe. And the reason for that, yeah, it, the credit needs to go to Tim Burton because it was Tim who came along in 1986. Mm-hmm. And so we're now seven years into this damn thing, right? So. <laughs> 1986 and it's this young guy at a Disney animation who comes up with the big idea. That's what I call it. The big idea. Mm -hmm. This is the idea that would change film history, change Hollywood forever, Mm -hmm. change the comic book industry and open the door for Marvel. And the big idea was this. Tim said to me one day, if we're going to make the first ever dark and serious comic book superhero feature film, this movie cannot be about Batman. Mm. This movie must be about Bruce Wayne. Ah, (laughs) he said, that's why we need to get Michael Keaton because with Michael Keaton, I can create a portrayal of Bruce Wayne. So driven, so obsessed to the point of being psychotic Mm -hmm. that audiences would go, Oh yeah, that's a guy who would get dressed up as a bat (laughs) and without getting unintentional laughs from the audience, Mm -hmm. which is what he feared the most. Right. If we, if we had a, a serious actor doing it Mm -hmm. and, um, The corollary to his big idea was the world building. He said, in order to make this work from the opening frames, Gotham City had to become the third most important character in the piece. Mm -hmm. Because only if audiences believed in Gotham City, suspended their disbelief, would they then be able to accept and believe in a guy dressed as a bat fighting a guy who looked like the Joker. And he was absolutely right. Mm -hmm. So my contention is, and it's easily proven, Tim Burton's vision 
continues to impact and influence every genre movie to this very day, to this very weekend. Mm -hmm. Had it not been for his big idea, what about Marvel? Well, let me tell you, you've all seen the Iron Man movies. Mm -hmm. I was going to mention the same thing. Yeah, yeah. They should really be titled Tony Stark. Yeah. -hmm. The Spider-Man movie should really be entitled Peter Parker. Mm -hmm. That's where it all comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And 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 not just not for nothing, but like comic books in general, um, comic book stories like in the pages of comic books became more cinematic the way that Batman 89 was because of the influence it had. Um, I mean, there there's a domino effect, right? Like Batman 89 was was um, was heavily influenced by like Frank Miller's The Dark Knight uh, series Um now, the, the, well, the tone, the tone of it, the, yeah, the, <laughs> it, 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 the Dark Knight really helped us most in in terms of marketing. OK, in terms of the fact that the world in starting in 86, okay. the world finally was accepting comic books as something more than for little kids. Like the dean said mm-hmm. that through, through this thing called graphic novels right. that you could make um, heftier themes heftier language, more mature and sophisticated graphic storytelling. You can deconstruct superheroes. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was that that enabled audiences around the world who had never read a comic book to begin to accept them as adult fare so that when our picture came out, more adults around the world who never read a comic book and never would were kind of willing to give Batman a shot as adult fare. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that cinematically, Neil Adams was a bigger influence. Well, mm-hmm. you eloquated that so much better than I could have. <laughs> but but that's the point. That's the point that I was making. That it became it became something where adults didn't have to be embarrassed by like going into um, comic book shops in order to uh, to buy comics. And in the early nineties, there's a huge resurgence of of comics and collecting, and a lot of the big event books from the from the early nineties. Um, a lot of that popularity, I think, is one of the dominoes that fell from from Batman 89. Yeah, I just wish they hadn't done the thing. OK, this one comes in 33 colors with different colors, <laughs> platinum, plastic, glow in the dark. Oh. Put your kids through college by saving X-Men number one. We're only printing 10,000 million copies of it. We always mention that. And I have all four like gatefold copies signed on my wall. <laughs> right behind this computer screen, They're like I they got you. It was one of the first things that I that I read. It was one of the first things that I fell in love with reading. So hey, take them off the wall and use them to send all your kids to college. <laughs> <I doubt it. laughs> they're they're signed by Jim Lee, and they're and they're probably only worth like the the dollar fifty cover <laughs> price <laughs> still. So hey, before I move on to your next question, I wanted to come back to something because Sean asked you about your other projects, and I just wanted to give you a personal thank you for two of the projects that you did uh, outside of Batman in the in the early 90s that were huge for me. Um, one was Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. Um, uh-huh. I fell in love with history and geography, and it was one of the, one of the influences that led me to become a teacher. I taught, Amer- I taught U.S. history for uh, nine years before moving into technology, which is what I teach now. And the other is Dino Saucers. Um, <laughs> it's still like one of the most like recognizable theme songs in my brain. Like I just plays on a loop, like the X-Men, the X-Men theme and the Batman animated series theme. 
like the dinosaurs theme to me. Like I did still like I can hear it playing in, in the background of my subconsciousness. Oh mm-hmm. my God. You got to go onto like Instagram and Facebook. There's like this dinosaurs page. It's unbelievable. Well, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. First of all, there's like 25 different sites. <laughs> um, and I was this close about right before COVID of getting Sony to agree to doing a new dinosaurs movie. Oh, nice. But it, it just, it didn't, just didn't come to pass. Yeah. I got to introduce my, my kid, my 13 year old to dinosaurs. He would well, probably... Just so you know, um, the secret scouts, uh-huh. there, there was a uh, David, Sarah, Paul, and Ryan. Mm-hmm. Uh, David is my son, David. Sarah is my daughter, Sarah. Yeah. Paul is my brother and Ryan is my cousin. Oh, that's awesome. I got the whole family into it. Yeah. Way to work them in. That is great. I have one thing that I want to share as, as I was listening to you talk, Michael, is that you, um, you had a long journey in making a dark, serious Batman film. And I got to say that I, you know, being in your shoes and everything like that has got to be very, very interesting from your viewpoint that not only did it take so long to get that first film, but now from Batman 89 to the Batman that just came out this year, it seems like everybody is wanting that darker and grittier Batman. So it's got to be interesting from your viewpoint of how it took you so long just to get that one. And then now it's like, that's really what people associate Batman with is that dark and serious role that they absolutely love now. So I recently, with the success of the Batman, Mm -hmm. went back into some old, old files Mm -hmm. that were in storage and found my emails to the studio began in late 1989, where I started to badger them (laughs) to let us do a Batman movie showing him as the world's greatest detective. Mm. It's taken 33 years to get that movie (laughs) And for me to be able to sit here and say to you, it was worth the wait yes. is, is incredible for me. Oh, it's awesome. Really just incredible for me. Um, yeah, I, I love the fact that now w- one of the things is, you know, Hollywood is great at killing the goose that laid the golden egg. <laughs> they have always been great at oversaturation once there's a good idea. Mm-hmm. What they don't, what for years they did not seem to grasp is that Batman, the movie, didn't succeed because it was dark. Mm -hmm. It succeeded because it was true to the integrity of the character of Batman. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean you got to make every other superhero dark. Right. It doesn't mean you need a dark Green Lantern or a dark Adam or a dark this or a dark that. I mean, the way they were going, I, I said to one studio exec who hasn't talked to me since, Uh, I said, the way you guys are going, the next movie you're going to make is Casper the Unfriendly Ghost. (laughs) I mean, that's that's just the way it is. So my big fear is oversaturation. Uh It's cookie cutter superhero movies. That would be the worst thing for us. There are certain movies that have come out in the last couple of years that I was not only that I didn't like, I was a bit angry Mm -hmm. because to me, they were just formulaic and and cookie cutter. Mm -hmm. It's the reason I loved Guardians of the Galaxy. Right. It's the reason I love Deadpool mm-hmm. because somebody was pushing the envelope and trying new things. And, and if I had to say anything about Batman, now that I'm in the fourth quarter of my career, it's about legacy. Mm-hmm. And look how incredible this is. 
that you have one franchise, one character in history that cinematically four different times completely reinvented what a comic book movie could be and impacted the world culture's perception of superheroes and or supervillains. Mm-hmm. Case in point, Batman 89, thanks to the genius of Tim Burton and Anton first, first ever revolutionary, dark and serious comic book superhero movie. Mm-hmm. Chris Nolan, the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight trilogy, completely reinventing what a comic book movie could be to the point where when you walk out of one of Chris's movies, you no longer have to say, gee, that was a great comic book movie. At last, you could say that was a great film. Yes. Yeah. Let's move. Let's keep the genius line moving. Todd Phillips comes up with Joker, which I don't even know where to begin. It, <laughs> it's a when cinema is at its best, it is a mirror of society. And it holds that mirror up to our face, like it or not. Mm-hmm. And we get to see who we are, warts and all, at that moment in time. And that's what the Joker movie did. Unlike any comic book movie in history, it talked about our lack of civility, mm-hmm. what's happened to this country and this world. It talks about polarization. It talks about you continue to ignore issues of mental health, then you're going to have gun violence because they're tied together. Right. And you can't keep ignoring this. I mean, just the issues that, that it forced us to deal with was, was incredible. And now again with the Batman, mm-hmm. I was asked before it opened, what are the cinematic antecedents, which Batman movie or which Marvel movie? Or I go, none. The, the cinema antecedents of the Batman are Silence of the Lambs, Chinatown, Seven, The Usual Suspects, French Connection, mm-hmm. Zodiac. This is a whole new thing. This is a crime drama, a noir crime drama. And four times four times now a Batman or Batman related movie has done that. And that's probably the thing I'm most proud about. It's awesome. <clears throat> and I, I loved the, the Batman as detective aspects of the, of the Batman, the follow the, mm-hmm. follow the, the crumbs and the, tra- and the trail and everything. It just, it, 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 that's of all the Batman stories that I've read in 30 years of, of reading comics, the, the detective stories are always my favorite. So I love to see that up on on, on screen. Mm-hmm. I used to tell fans before the Batman opened, I said, uh, all the Batman movies you've seen to date have been based on Batman comics. Mm-hmm. This movie is based on Detective Comics. Nice. It's awesome. There is a difference. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You you mentioned the role that it played um, in influencing other superheroes and superhero films that, you know, we didn't need a dark green lantern and you, you don't need... Um, you don't need every superhero to, to copycat Batman. Um, I know, you know, a contemporary of the Batman 89 film uh, is um, Die Hard. And, and a lot of films copied that formula uh, for, you know, they have been for 20, 30 years now. You know, like Die Hard on a boat and Die Hard on a bus <laughs> and Die Hard, you know, it's it's all very formulaic. Um and and you you spoke about like you know that not every superhero has to be that that's bat that was Batman's bag is 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 dark and 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 angsty. If if you could go back and and pick another character to start from scratch with and develop that character into a movie that really represents what that character is, do you have one in mind that you would love to tackle? I did three times over. I did. Um, I am the originating producer of Shazam. 
Oh, awesome. I, oh, I nice. Worked, I worked on Shazam for over 10 years to get that thing going. Mm-hmm. Otto Binder, who created the Marvel family in Black Adam mm-hmm. uh, and was the primary Captain Marvel writer throughout uh, the, the period of Fawcett. Otto was a mentor. He put me in touch with C.C. Beck when I was in seventh grade, and I began a weekly correspondence with C.C. Beck. <clears throat> then he put me in touch with all the editors and, and other people involved in the Captain Marvel story and the Fawcett story. So that meant an awful lot to me to see Captain Marvel come to fruition. Uh, another one of my all-time favorites is The Shadow. Mm-hmm. Oh, Yes. Yeah. I worked on that movie. I need to thank you. I need to thank you for that too, from as my childhood in the nineties. Yep. Well, um, I wrote a couple of issues of the Shadow in the nineteen seventies uh, at DC Comics, uh, working with Denny O'Neill, which was fabulous. He gave me my first professional writing job was writing the Shadow number nine, and then number eleven, which was a team up with the Avenger and Justice Incorporated. Mm-hmm. Um, I've written a couple of Shadow graphic novels for. Um, uh, Dynamite Comics, Shadow Green Hornet, Dark Knights, first meeting of the Shadow and the Green Hornet. And then I couldn't believe it. In 85 years, Street and Smith, Condé Nast, never teamed up their three great heroes in one adventure. Doc <laughs> Savage, the Shadow and the Avenger. And I got to write that. And, oh, and nice. that was a fun graphic novel to do as well. Mm-hmm. So the Shadow was of critical importance to me. I knew Walter Gibson. I spent a lot of time with Walter Gibson. He told me so many stories. I badgered the hell out of him. <laughs> you know, I learned so much about it. And every time I write the shadow, I write as if Walter's standing over my shoulder, looking at what I'm writing mm-hmm. and I try to please him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had the rights to the shadow to make into a movie. And I get a call from CAA creative artist agency um, Big agency, big talent agency. Mm-hmm. They said, we have, Michael, we have a director who is a humongous Shadow fan and would like to direct a Shadow movie. We know you have the rights. Could we get you to meet with him? I go, well, what's his name? He said, Sam Raimi. I said, yeah, I think I'll meet with him. <laughs> so I go over to meet Sam. And I walk in the door. We sit down. And he goes, Uslin. He goes, that's an unusual name. I say, I know it is. He said, are you any relation to a Dr. Paul Uslin, an optometrist in Ann Arbor, Michigan? I go, Sam, that's my brother. That's my older brother, Paul. Where where do you know my brother Paul from? (laughs) He said, well, when I was growing up outside Ann Arbor, my mom used to take us into town to have our eyes checked and get our glasses from Dr. Uslin. Oh, wow. (laughs) Pick up my cell phone. At the meeting, I call my brother. I go, Paul, does the name Sam Raimi ring a bell? He goes, oh, sure. He goes, really nice boy. He goes, I took care of his whole family. He goes, whatever happened to that kid? (laughs) (laughs) So we start talking. And I said to Sam, okay. I said, this is great. And he told me that he made Dark Man because he couldn't get the rights to the shadow. (laughs) Uh, And and that was kind of his first attempt. Mm -hmm. So I, I said, what's your influence? Do you want to make the shadow of the pulps? Are you thinking the shadow of the radio show, the shadow of the comic books or some hybrid? He goes, well, actually a hybrid. He goes, you know, I love the pulps. I understand the importance of the radio show. Um, He goes, but it was the comics that made me fall in love with the shadow. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, that's great. Uh, I said, anything come to mind in particular? So he started to rattle off a couple of scenes, a couple of things. I go, wait a minute. (laughs) I reach into my briefcase and I pull out the comic books I wrote at DC Comics in the mid-70s, The Shadow. 
I go, Sam, what you're talking about, I wrote it. It's in this comic book and it's in this comic book. He says, well, you know, Michael, we've met before. I go, I go, I'm embarrassed. I said, I, I, I can't believe it. I don't remember. He goes, 1975, first Indianapolis Comic-Con. I said, I remember it well. It was the first comic book convention I'd ever been invited to as a professional because I had started writing The Shadow and Beowulf for DC Comics. It was right before I started writing Batman for Detective Comics. And I was a speaker. He goes, well, he goes, I read in a fanzine that you were going to be speaking about The Shadow. And I begged my, my folks and they drove me to Indianapolis. And I was in that room when you were talking he goes, and afterwards I came up to you to sign my shadow comic books. And he said, and you talked to me like for 20 minutes as if I was the only person in the room. He goes, oh I followed your career. I have all the comics and books you've written. He goes, let's make this movie together. Oh my God. How, how, Impressive. How cosmic is that? That is fantastic. Oh my. Oh, I'm getting goosebumps listening to that. That's, That's just, cosmic. Yeah. Of course, the crappy part of the story is um, we ran into studio exec interference and ultimately could not get it through. And we had a great script in the works by Siavash Farahani. Mm -hmm. We knew we were not going into the first shadow movie with Shawan Khan. We were using Mr. Remorse, Mm -hmm. um, um, the Prince of Evil. Mm -hmm. And, um, we were on our, we were on a great path. And then they come back and I go, well, guys, you better forget it because this would be expensive and period pieces don't sell. Mm. I said, do you have proof of that? Or is that just something you heard regurgitated in the hallways here? (laughs) You lose your filter, by the way, guys, when you get older. (laughs) And he said, well, everybody knows it. I said, really? I said, what about Titanic? And they said, well, that's different. I go, why is that different? They said, well, that's history. I said, what about Indiana Jones? I said, well, that's different. I go, why is that different? They said, well, that's, it's, it's Steven Spielberg. <laughs> and then the project gets killed. The next thing that happens is the first Captain America movie comes out that's set in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. I called this guy up I, and he goes, hi, how are you? I said, what about Captain America? <laughs> could have had a great shadow movie and to this day i would it's like batting your head against the wall i would love to get my hands on it again um i think sam would also i could see it today as the streaming series yeah that you guys aren't old enough to know the original mission impossible tv series are you i, I uh, I've, I've seen, seen a it. few episodes <laughs> Like on YouTube. (laughs) Yeah, in retrospect. Well, well, let me say something about it. So it was a network show, right? Shot in color. Mm -hmm. But the opening sequences, when you had uh, Peter Graves uh, in the office going through the book to pick out who was going to be the agents that he was going to pick, and you had the first meeting of all of them in that room, everything in that room and all the costuming was black and white. So even though it was filmed in color... It was all black and white. And then as soon as they moved to the, the next action scene or foreign scene, the color burst. I had this vision of doing the shadow like that with the only color red being prominent in it. Oh, that'd be cool. And I thought, now that would be an interesting streaming series approach. Yeah. And, you know, the shadow, it's a Sam Raimi. It's a uh, David Fincher. It's um, 
um, Matt Reeves. It's, you know, <laughs> it, it, there's, a, there's a number of, of great directors that could do a great job with that. And then we, we were trying to do a Doc Savage movie. And we had The Rock and we had Shane Black and nobody could get their schedules together. And the next thing you know, that fell apart. Um, but it's not the next thing you know. It's like, yo, oh, by the way, you know, 10 years went by. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's the way it is. And I write all about these things in my two memoirs. Awesome. Oh, man. Well, uh, the next question we want to ask you is with your history and your knowledge about Batman, what is an outlandish fact about Batman that you know that most people would be surprised to hear or maybe not know about or is just something that is you you have to look it up because it's so outlandish because of that. In early 1939 Mm -hmm. or, or slight or slightly earlier, a teenager named Bob Kahn, who by then was going as Robert Kane Mm -hmm. uh, or Bob Kane on his cartooning in comic books was told by the editor at National Allied, which had become um, DC Comics, Detective Comics Incorporated, um, was told that they were looking for a second superhero because this Superman thing was really taking off. Mm -hmm. So Bob came up with a drawing and a name. And do you know what that drawing and name was? I'm guessing it's not Batman. <laughs> it was Birdman. <laughs> oh, Birdman. <laughs> Which makes Michael Keaton's movie yes. even more surreal. <laughs> Bob then changed it to Batman mm-hmm. and did his first sketch. And he wasn't a writer. And he had met Bill Finger at a party. Mm-hmm. And they got to talking. And uh, he thought he could be a good writer collaborator on this thing. So he showed Bill Finger the sketch and it was a sketch of a guy in a little mask in a red suit with real bat wings coming out of his back. Mm -hmm. So Bill Finger saw it and said, well, okay, you got a good idea here, but you know, that Superman character has superpowers. He said, so for the second superhero, wouldn't it make more sense if we made him human? So Bob said, okay. He goes, why don't you change the bat wings to a cape, but scallop it so it looks like bat wings. Mm -hmm. So Bob changed that. He goes, now bats are nocturnal. So why don't you change the red costume and make it all dark gray, dark blue, black. Great. Um, Doesn't look very mysterious. You know, bats have prominent ears. Why don't you give them a cowl? instead of this little domino mask with, with big ears on it. He goes, and why don't you white out the eyes like the Phantom in the comic strips? That always makes a character look more mysterious. Mm-hmm. And while you're at it, why don't you give him gloves instead of bare hands? And how about boots? You look better in boots. And, uh, oh, and then on the gloves, why don't you put like little bat scallops on them? And how about you give him a belt? Mm-hmm. And with this belt, he can carry detective uh, things that could help him, maybe grappling hooks. So um, I ask you, <laughs> who created Batman? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. 
Oh, and then Bob, and then he said to Bob, well, who is this guy? What's his story? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> so Bill Finger said, all right, he is Bruce Wayne. And his parents are wealthy and they're walking at the street at night and they get mugged by a guy who steals his mother's necklace and his father protests and he gets shot and the kid is there and his parents are slaughtered in the street. And the kid at that moment gives up his childhood and swears to get the guy who did this, get all the bad guys and, um, and, and we'll give him a car and we'll give him a cave and we'll give him a, um, instead of New York city, um, got to come up with a name for the city. Mm-hmm. And he picks up a phone book and in the, uh, in the phone book, he goes through and opens it up and he finds Gotham jewelers in Yonkers. Mm-hmm. He said, there's a name Gotham city. <laughs> so let me ask you again, <laughs> who created Batman? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a, that's an entire podcast episode in and of itself. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, which, by the way, Michael, like of all the episodes we've done, we have done the most episodes on Batman. I think we on, I think we're on, this is our fourth or fifth episode that's just been dedicated to Batman since we've started cool. the show. So it's it's uh, obviously it tells you you know how great of a character and story it is that we yeah, keep bringing, a, coming back to him. So yeah, it's a it's a fun playground to play in. Mm-hmm. Definitely awesome. Um, but nobody has stories like you. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, this is a question from uh, Sean Flanagan via Twitter. And he says, Michael, you've been the steward for possibly the most popular comic book character, comic hero ever. What is it like seeing so many interpretations over the years? And is there an angle that you would like to explore in a future film? One of the great things about Batman that I've learned, whether it's the comic books, movies, the cartoons, anything, is that because he's human and the readers for 80 plus years have so strongly been able to identify with him, you get to project yourself onto Batman. Mm -hmm. You get to project who you are, what you think, your philosophies, even your politics. I learned that when Dark Knight came out. Mm -hmm. And then on TV, this one night we turned on on Fox News, they were claiming the Dark Knight Batman, that's their guy. He's <laughs> really right wing and he's all the things we represent. Then you flip over to MSNBC and everyone on the left is going, there's our guy. He's I mean, it, you know, it was really, really something. Uh-huh. My huge objection to the Batman TV series when it came on in 1966 was that it was the only interpretation in the world mm-hmm. about Batman that the world knew from unless we're a hardcore comic book reader. And um, that killed me because it was a comedy. Batman was a joke. People around the world were laughing at Batman. I couldn't stand it. Mm-hmm. That's when I made my vow, like Bruce Wayne once made a vow, <laughs> except he made his vow over the bloody slaughtered bodies of his parents in the street. My parents were safe upstairs in the kitchen. <laughs> and, and I vowed somehow, someday I would show the world a true Batman, mm-hmm. the Bill Finger, Bob Kane version. Um, And that's what started me on the path. But today it's a whole different story. Today we have room for every interpretation of Batman. You can imagine. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if it's a Lego Batman, we're not laughing at him. We're laughing with him. Mm -hmm. If it's the old TV show from the 1960s, what a great way today to bring young kids into the world of Batman Mm -hmm. when they're not old enough yet to go to the movies or see the video games or even some of the cartoons. 
or have Brave and Bold Batman for younger kids or Batman meets Scooby-Doo for real younger (laughs) kids and the Arkham Asylum games for older Mm -hmm. kids. And to have different filmmakers come in and show different interpretations of Batman, same way they did in the comics, same exact way. Mm -hmm. When I was a kid in the 50s and 60s, my Batman was the robot Batman, Bat Genie, Bat Mite, Bat Baby, (laughs) Bat Ape, Bat Hound. (laughs) all that crap. Um, So there have been wildly different interpretations in the comics themselves. So I think there is room where everyone can have their own Batman. Mm -hmm. The one question I'm asked at every Comic-Con, Michael, what's the one true Batman? And it's the easiest question to answer. The one true Batman is the one you were first introduced to, whether you were 5, 8, 12, 16, or 22. Doesn't matter if it's a comic book, a cartoon, a movie, whatever. That's your Batman. Mm -hmm. And everyone is entitled to have his or her Batman. Mm -hmm. And doesn't mean you have to accept or reject anybody else's Batman. Mm -hmm. There's there's room for everybody and every interpretation. That's a great way to look at it. Oh, yeah. I wish... I wish more of fandom was more accepting like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Look, I, I still can't figure out how in fandom today, I was there when it began. And I read every comic book from every company. I collected everything. I loved comic books. I love superheroes. I can't begin to fathom today that there are ones who say, well, I love DC and I hate Marvel. Or I love Marvel, but I hate DC. It doesn't mm-hmm. compute at all mm-hmm. for me. We should be enjoying and loving this wonderful thing we have in our lives mm-hmm. have I you agree. ever been to a convention and given that answer and then someone who says uh i respect your opinion michael but you're wrong it's george clooney <laughs> i have never heard that from anyone at any time <laughs> i think this is kevin's way of saying that he say, he's telling you right now <laughs> no my if, if i were going to go off of what michael um what, what michael just said uh, Batman 89 was probably my my first real exposure to it. Yeah. I found the um the the 60 series like on syndication like in the in the early 90s um but yeah. that was after the fact. And and I still love the animated series probably uh as oh, much yeah. as anything because it's just so many of those were great detective stories and that's just what I what I really loved. Definitely. Some of the best stories in the history of Batman are, are in the Batman animation. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Mask, Mask of the Phantasm, maybe. Yes. Oh yes, never. Yes, yeah. best ever. I've been we, I, we, I, I've been talking about how that's just a great film. I would love to see Phantasm make its way into a live action Batman film in the future. Like I would absolutely yeah, I, love I brought, that. I brought it up at one moment in time. I think I was laughed out of the room. I oh. forget. We we are big fans of the um, of the DC like animated universe in 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 our household. Um, simply because a lot of those stories that you love from the comics get adapted and um, they, they're just done really, really well. Mm-hmm. Look at Mr. Freeze. Yeah. Yes. Per- prime example. Yeah. Yes. And, those, and actually that's the one that my son would watch in the car. Like when we would go on trips, he would watch the, the Mr. Freeze movie. Uh, from the animated series over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. It'll make people, it can make people cry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, those folks don't get enough credit. They don't get the spotlight enough, not just Bruce, Tim, either Eric Radomski, Paul Dini, mm-hmm. Andrea Romano, Kevin Conroy, Mark Hamill. I said to Mark, you know, if they ever build a Mount Rushmore to the Joker, it's going to be Jack Nicholson, Heath Ledger, Joaquin Phoenix, and you. Yes, absolutely. Agreed. Yeah. And I, I have a picture, uh, I can't find it here, right? This one, this one right there. 
is me and Madden and Kevin Conroy uh, from a few years ago. Like that was like Christmas getting to meet, getting to meet your, your hero. And I talk about Andrea Romano all the time to anybody who will, will listen because people don't understand like how important it's like voice casting and voice directing are for mm-hmm. animated features. And to me, she's the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The gold standard and deserves so much of the credit for the success of that series. And right. and I know so much about her from watching every single special feature on every single DC animated like DVD that's been produced in the last 20 years. Like she's just like the, the process that they go through. Like, I, I don't want to do an Andre Romano, um, tribute show but like the process that they go through and then and they film it in detail and everything it's just great it's getting to see like the behind the curtain how movies are made and it's it's one of the reasons why i get to i i teach filmmaking i teach um you know an introduction to like digital media and arts class um and i love teaching young people like like you don't ever have to be in front of the screen or on camera in order to find your place. And like, this is just an example of, of where you can, where you can use your talents. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I love you brought up Mark Hamill too, cause he's always been my favorite Joker. And I think, you know, we don't think of him as a Joker, you know, the same way how everyone thinks of Kevin Conroy as the voice of Batman as well too. Cause he's been in so many properties outside of the an- animated series. I mean, you know this as well too, but I, I always think of how Mark Hamill just does a, fantastic job of being kind of one of the just like what you said a keystone person of bringing the joker to life so um and then our final question from our listeners is uh chris tully from instagram he has said if you had started your batman journey today who would you reach out to matt reeves (laughs) (laughs) that was easy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh yeah uh maybe maybe the more interesting flip on that if i had if i had been born in a different generation during the golden age of comics mm-hmm. who would i have looked to and there it's it keeps coming up three people mm-hmm. i would have looked to orson wells mm-hmm. alfred hitchcock to do the detective one yes <laughs> and fritz lang okay and I think those directors could each have done an amazing Batman movie in the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Those are good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, those are good. Fritz Fritz Lang was like the definition of ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man, right. we could do this forever. Yeah. <laughs> but, but Michael, we do normally play a game with our guests and you're no different. So uh, <laughs> you have an extensive background working with Batman and all things in the bat universe. And so I, I created a game called, and I'm going to share my screen now. Uh, I created a game called the Arkham files, which is decoding Batman's villains using psychoanalysis and diagnosis. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you a description of somebody who is suffering from some sort of mental illness and you, you and Sean will get to to chime in and guess who I am describing. Wow, uh, Tra- Travis Lang- Langley should be here. <laughs> so he, he knows all the psychological aspects of this. Mm-hmm. And um, I want before we get started with this, um, I want to give credit to the the article that I helped helped me write this. I, I did I use uh, some inspiration. From uh, CBR.com's Isa Tipu, who wrote an article on this in uh, 2020. I uh, used some, some of the stuff that she came up with for 
um, for the background information. But here we go. Here is the Arkham Files. Patient number one. I wouldn't categorize this patient as criminally insane like many of the other residents here. Rather, he demonstrates key characteristics of autism spectrum disorder. His social interactions are often inappropriate and can escalate to severe behavior disturbances. He also displays obsessive habits and a compulsive need to communicate in a manner that leaves others confused or perplexed. Uh, could it be the penguin? It's not the penguin. Now, wait a minute. The penguin <laughs> had an obsessive habit with his umbrellas and his hat. And ask Burgess Meredith. He would communicate with going, rah, rah, rah. I, I think you're wrong. I, I, I challenge you. There is a flag on the play. Yeah. Sean, do you want to take a guess? You know, honestly, I don't think I'll, I'll have a chance against Michael because even if I get all mine right, he will too. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think, would it be... Uh, uh, maybe Riddler? It is the Riddler. Okay. It is the Riddler. He displays <laughs> obsessive habits and compulsive need to communicate in a manner that leaves others confused or perplexed. The Riddler. All right, everybody listening, write in and tell them I'm absolutely right that that is a description of the penguin. We will get to the penguin eventually. All right. Patient number two. Uh, the next subject seems to be highly fascinated with fire. He has a history of burning things and indulges in pyromania as a means of relieving built-up tension and personal stress. So who was that? Was that Killer Moth? Close. Um, Firefly. Firefly. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Very nice. good. Very good. All right, Sean, I'm going to give the next one to you. Okay. Patient number three, patient demonstrates often unpredictable and erratic behavior with a side of drama queen antics, likely a case of hysteronic personality disorder, which creates an excessive need for attention and inappropriately seductive behavior. Although strong willed, she seems easily influenced by others. Um, is this all? Uh, the only one that's really coming to mind right now is Harley Quinn. Of course. It is indeed Harley Quinn. Yeah, okay. okay. I, I was just making sure like, I didn't over... Well, because the first one kind of threw me off because Michael... Because <laughs> <laughs> Michael insisted Michael, we were wrong. Well, Michael made a good point for Penguin, so I'm like, is there somebody else I'm overlooking? <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Patient number four. Subject is a volatile combination of infer inferiority complex and narcissism. He is known for keeping company with others for the sole purpose of raising his own social status while systematically trying to exert his power over subordinates. While he is less physically imposing than some of the other inmates, his wardrobe choices would indicate delusions of grandeur. It's the penguin again. It, it is the penguin this time, Michael. You did a great job. Great job. Okay, patient number five, Sean, this is going to come to you. Okay. This subject's long history of mental anguish can be traced back to the isolation he felt as a youth in boarding school. However, more recently, he has been prone to violent episodes that can be attributed to the numbness, depression, and intense denial associated with complex bereavement disorder, likely caused by the tragic passing of a loved one. Now, why don't you give him all the easy ones? <laughs> Well, now I feel like I have to get this one. <laughs> <laughs> you're not a you're not a bat fan if you don't get it right. We're gonna make you take the hat and t-shirt off. I know I might. Well, don't ask me to take my shirt off. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I actually don't. I mean, is it Mr. Freeze on this one? What do you think, Michael? I'm going to agree with him. That is Mr. Freeze. Okay. Very good. Gotcha. Very I, good, I just Mr. Did, Freeze. I didn't know, to be honest, and I feel bad about this, but I, I uh, didn't know about the boarding school one, but like all the other stuff, I'm like, it sounds like him, but I just didn't know his background in terms of if he went to boarding school and everything. So that was the one detail that was throwing me off. Clearly, if you'd have done your research. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's every time when my son is on the show to yeah. quiz us on stuff, he always knocks us for not being as informed as he is. So... <laughs> All right, patient number six. This patient struggles with gaps in his memory as well as simple decision-making. His descent towards uh, criminal... I don't think I spelled... The, that's not the right descent. His descent towards criminal behavior is likely due to a radical contortion of the boundary right, between good face, and evil. Two-face, two-face, two-face. And it seems to be trapped <laughs> in a perpetual state of interpersonal <laughs> conflict between two distinct and virtuously opposed personalities. Michael, you got it before I even got to the end. It is two-face. But I can, I can make a case for why it's the penguin. <laughs> they're all the penguin all the penguin <laughs> see I wrote this thinking that this would be fun to do and I, Michael just made it even more fun alright I've got, I've got two left I've got two left here yeah. we go patient number seven subject exhibits textbook antisocial personality disorder and a sheer lack of remorse for the harm she causes by manipulating others to get what she wants habitual kleptomania and an unhealthy sense of invincibility that's not invisibility invincibility are likely <laughs> the outcomes of environmental factors surrounding her adolescent upbringing catwoman that is catwoman i can make a case for it <laughs> mrs penguin <laughs> <laughs> all right here we go last one for you michael mm-hmm. uh this go one is it. a truly what Joker. <laughs> <laughs> My process of elimination. All right, at least let me read the clue. Okay. This one is a truly complex case of bipolar personality disorder with a flair for the theatrical. Although little is known about his personal history, his mental decline is likely due to the lasting effects of excessive physical abuse that he endured as a child. The patient is also known to suffer from pseudo-bulbar effect and often breaks into uncontrollable laughter in the most inappropriate situations. All right, now I have a question, a trivia question for you guys. Oh, yeah. What is the one correct date on the giant penny in the Hall of Trophies in the Batcave? Oh, I don't, I don't think I know. This is, the, this is the trivia question that I was asked by Senator Patrick Leahy, President Pro Tempore of the Senate who said this was his favorite Batman trivia question that nobody in his life had ever asked answered before. And he asked me and I got it right. <laughs> what, what is on the giant penny? Doesn't everybody know that <laughs> the only correct date is 1947 because the case of the penny plunderers was published in world's finest number 30 in 1947. Oh, and that's what introduced the penny. That's awesome. See, we yeah, learn yeah. something every day. I feel like I we know. needed the, the NBC, the more you know star. Yeah. <laughs> shoot across <laughs> the screen right there. <laughs> Gentlemen, oh. this has been a pleasure, a real that, pleasure. For us as well. Before yes. we let you go, Michael, um, can you get me to tell us where uh, our listeners can find you on the internet or, or find your book? Go ahead and plug yourself. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm lurking on Instagram and Facebook. I think you'll find a lot of entertaining items and pictures posted there regularly. Mm-hmm. They're um, great, by the my, way. I love it. <laughs> uh, thanks. Yeah. Um, 
my two memoirs are The Boy Who Loved Batman, which is being turned into the Broadway play, and Batman's Batman, uh, all available through Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, yada, yada, yada. Uh, the two audio books, which just came out, are through uh, Blackstone. And uh, you can get them again through Amazon or whatever your audiobook uh, app may be. And um, very excited about uh, some projects coming up. And we're going to be at San Diego Comic Con doing a few panels and presentations. Looking forward to that. And uh, that's what's in the cards. That's awesome. Kevin and I one day hope to make it to the San Diego Comic-Con at some point and, and do an episode out there at some point. So we would love to do that. That's, and I'm going to bring my book with me so that you can sign it. Yes. <laughs> That's a deal. Yeah. That's a deal. <laughs> That'd be amazing. If I print screen right now, I have my picture made with you. So <laughs> it's just like being at Comic-Con. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In this day and age, people will think it's real. And we were actually were there together at the same time. <laughs> Well, we really have enjoyed uh, you coming on the show, Michael. Thank you so much again for joining us. This was a, this was an honor and a, and a, a, a pleasure. That's going to wrap up another episode of The Caption Life. We hope you enjoyed listening. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button on whatever major podcast platform you listen to us on. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Caption Life. And if you like what we're doing, give us a shout out. Tag us in your posts. For more info about us and all of our previous episodes, please visit thecaptionlife.com. Until next time, I'm Batman. Ha <laughs>